And so today's passage is going to be found in Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 12. Uh, If you uh, have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't, there should be a Bible somewhere in your row under the seat in front of you. Uh, You can grab that and follow along with the scriptures. We will not have screens today, as you can see. So important to find one or just uh, steal your neighbors or kind of get in real tight to them. Uh, Keep them warm as we read together. And if you are able, uh, if you guys could please stand for the reading of God's word. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aneah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand, and Pedeah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Habadada, Zechariah, <laughs> sorry, I practiced that one for hours, I want you guys to know that, Hashbadanah is what that was, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand, and Ezra, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan and um, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Hey, good afternoon. That was really pathetic. I understand that we're in a new place and everything, but we're going to have to do better than that. Good afternoon. All right, that makes me feel a little bit less awkward up here. Um, My name is Joseph. If I hadn't had the opportunity to meet you, I'm one of the pastors that serves here at Providence. Uh, It's my joy to gather with all of you today. Uh, for what we're, what I am now calling Providence Unplugged, okay? Um, <clears throat> MTV used to do these concerts that were great back in the day uh, called MTV Unplugged, right? Um, I, I referenced a couple of weeks ago that I love Nirvana. 
best concert ever, right? Nirvana Unplugged. Probably not ever, but it was a really good one. Um, <clears throat> we are obviously not in the facility that we permanently occupy, and so uh, just a couple of things about that. Number one, um, we are, as we said in the email that we sent out to all of our members, we are doing everything that we can as a team of elders and staff to get back in our facility so that we can occupy it again. Uh, there are a number of permitting issues that we were made aware of that, uh, that obviously had expired that we, uh, fire marshal showed up and said, you guys can no longer occupy this facility until all of these things are rectified. Those things are in the process of being rectified. So uh, we will be here temporarily. And, but I want to say... We're, we're petitioning and asking all of you guys to be praying with us that when we say temporarily, I mean, it will be really temporary, not temporary as in a few months, but temporary as in a month or so. And so it's possible that we could only be here for a, a few weeks, but we just need everything to fall in line accordingly. Uh, all of the contractors to show up and to show and do their work on time and for uh, our management company to pay them on time and all of those things in order for us to occupy our facility quickly. And so please join us in praying to that end that we can get back there as quickly as possible. The second thing, though, is that I hope that through this process of being temporarily displaced, we can be in a very practical way reminded of the fact that the church is not a building, the church is a people. And that we gather as the people of God and the presence of God inhabits us as the gathered people of God. And so um, we, we don't need to be in a facility that we own in order for our church to continue going forward in the mission that God has called us to. All we need to do is to be faithful to gather together with one another, to hear the word of God proclaimed and to submit ourselves to it and to live in light of it. Amen. And so um, it, I understand that um, Providence outgrew the uh, what we would call mobile church phase, but for some reason God and his sovereignty saw it fit that we should kind of re-enter this phase again temporarily. And I do believe, as I said uh, in the little Facebook Live devotional that I did last week, that, that I, I believe God is trying to teach us something in this. And so let's look at this, not just through natural eyes, but through spiritual eyes as well. And so this is an opportunity for our church to press in and, and to be strengthened and sanctified by God's grace. Amen. And so um, <clears throat> if this is your first time to gather with us, I wanted to make that known. This is not our, uh, obviously, this is not our, our permanent gathering place, but we are glad that you're here. Uh, whether you're a Christian, not sure you're a Christian, or sure you're not a Christian, my prayer is the same every week, that uh, you would encounter the living God by his word and that you would be transformed by it. So would you guys please pray with me to that end? Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace and we petition you by the blood of Christ to respond to our request this afternoon. Father, we ask that by the captivating work of the Holy Spirit that you would make everyone in this room attentive to your word. Father, we need your voice to reverberate through the chambers of our hearts. We need to clearly comprehend what it is that you have to say to us. And so I ask that you would help me proclaim your word in a way that is clear and comprehensive in a way that brings you glory, in a way that edifies your people. And I pray that I would proclaim your word in the power of your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. All right, as Eric said, we are in a series called Revival, and we have uh, been exploring what happens whenever God's spirit is poured out on his people in an extraordinary way uh, through what we would call the extraordinary means of grace. Um, revival, as Dr. Tim Keller described it, is um, an extraordinary operation 
of the Spirit working in and through God's ordinary means of grace. And ordinary means of grace being the, the, the preaching of God's Word, uh, being able to sit under and submit to God's Word through prayer, through the spiritual disciplines, and so on and so forth. And so we started out by explaining what revival is. In the very first week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 64, where Isaiah prays essentially for God to come down to rend the heavens and to come down and to manifest His presence amongst His people in Babylon. Then we moved and we looked in Revelation chapter 3, and we talked about why do we need revival? It's whenever the church becomes complacent or whenever the church becomes lukewarm, uh, we pray for God to revive us. And we've said that, you know, we find ourselves, um, as, as, as devoted as we would like to be, we find ourselves, if we're honest, oftentimes in this place of, of lukewarm Christianity, of complacency and stagnancy. And so uh, we pray and we ask for God to revive us. And then the past few weeks, we've been exploring kind of the defining characteristics of a revived church. And that first week we said, you know, a revived church recounts the cost of discipleship, that we want to see to it that our hearts are reoriented around pure devotion, the call to follow Jesus and lay our life down for him, that God would be our first love, that Jesus would be our highest pursuit. And last week, we were going to, I ended up, because of the, gap, because of the facility issues, um, we didn't gather, and the sermon was going to be on uh, spiritual warfare and the Word of God and kind of how those two things play into one another, but uh, I did a Facebook Live devotional instead, and that uh, live devotional took on a different form than the sermon would have. But nonetheless, the emphasis of last week's talk was guarding our hearts from the deception of the enemy and the influence of the world. And I planned for last week's sermon to follow up the previous sermon, which was recounting the cost of discipleship. And the reason I wanted last week's sermon to follow up with that one is because if we want Jesus to be our greatest desire, then we have to guard the ground where our desires are developed. Amen? If we want Jesus to be our greatest desire, then we have to guard the ground where our desires are cultivated, which is our heart. So last week on the Facebook Live devotional, I said, you know, it's talking about guarding the garden. Um, and so the enemy knows this. He knows that our heart is essentially the battlefield where our desires are cultivated and where our desires are shaped. And so what the enemy does is he targets our heart, but he doesn't do this through obvious forms, okay? Uh, if you're a Christian, it's likely that the enemy is not with great neon signs trying to point to sinful behavior and saying, hey, go do this, go do this, go do this. Because if you're a Christian and you have the Spirit of God living inside of you and the Holy Spirit convicts your heart, the enemy is not going to come to you oftentimes with these big, obvious, and overt forms of sin that he's going to try and tempt you with. No, his deception is much more subtle. It's like that in the Garden of Eden where he came in as a serpent a talking serpent, mind you. He came in as a serpent and he deceived Adam and Eve by simply reversing or, or kind of tweaking what God said and putting doubt into their minds and hearts, into Adam and Eve's minds and heart. And he, he caused them to, devout, or to doubt God's goodness and God's promise to them. And so he does the same thing with us. He doesn't come to us in obvious forms. He does it oftentimes through forms, deceptive and subtle, subtle forms of influence. And so when our hearts or when he does this, when the enemy comes in and whenever he shapes our hearts through subtle forms of deception and influence, what happens is we can become, as the people of God, more influenced by the world than we are by the word of God. The people of God can become more influenced by the world than they are by the word of God. And this is, has, has born, to, or born out to be true from the Old Testament into the New Testament. 
Uh, one of the things that consistently happened with God's people is he would call them to a standard of holiness, and then he would then find them engaging in forms of idolatry, right? This happens at, with the children of Israel, Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses goes up and hears from God. He comes down with the Ten Commandments, and while he's up there, what's happening? Basically, Mardi Gras, uh, Hebrew style, is, is happening down there, right? He comes down, and there are people dancing around a golden calf, and there's some activities going on that we won't talk about in front of children, okay? And, and, but what happened was God had had redeemed his people. He had redeemed them from Egyptian captivity and slavery, but yet even after their redemption, they still engaged in idolatry. And this happens over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God demonstrates his covenant faithfulness to his people, but they consistently break his covenant. They consistently demonstrate themselves to be unfaithful to the covenant because they are more shaped and influenced by, and were oftentimes more shaped and influenced by the pagan religions that surrounded them. And so in the Old Testament, it was pretty common that the world, so to speak, Babylon, would get into the hearts of God's people, and God took great issue with that. And the same thing happened in the New Testament, though. Even after the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost and the New Testament church was formed, we often like to romanticize the vision of the early church. Right? We like to say, look at the early church and how they did it. And certainly, I think there was, there was a purity to the early church that we can look back to and we can say that's... That is what we long to experience. But let's not forget that the early church, the majority of the reason why we have the New Testament is because the Apostle Paul is having to write to correct sinful patterns that have already started to emerge in the early church, right? First Corinthians was like the Corinthian version of Mardi Gras, right? Uh, there was all kinds of crazy stuff that was happening in that church, and Paul had to write to reprimand, to admonish, and rebuke it, right? Because the pagan religions, even of that time, had infiltrated the hearts of the Christians and had started to, in, to influence the practices of the Christian, the worship, and all of those things. And so what happens, and the enemy knows this, is that if he can get to our hearts and see to it that our hearts are shaped more by the world than they are by the word of God, then we, as the people of God, will cease to reflect, we will cease to image the God who we are called to follow. We will cease to reflect and image Jesus, and we will get nominal, half-hearted Christianity, and this is what the enemy wants. Listen, the enemy doesn't have to get you living in overt, blatant, obvious forms of sin to get you off of the mission of God. All he has to do is get you to a place of complacency and nominalism, and he wins. That's all he has to do. He wins. If he could just get the people of God to cease walking in the power of God, then the enemy wins. And so we have to guard our hearts from the enemy. But listen, we don't do this by avoiding the world. A common tactic of Christians, if we're, we're trying to uh, guard ourselves against the deception of the enemy, what we'll do is we'll just try and avoid the world altogether, right? Uh, now, there's very extreme forms of this. And then there are less extreme forms of this, but nonetheless, the practice is all the same. There are extreme forms of this, which means you can move to the hills of Pennsylvania, not have electricity, not have a television, not have a vehicle. You know what I'm talking about? Or you can move out there and you can name your kids after a bunch of these guys that we just read in the Bible. You can't even pronounce them unless you can speak Hebrew. You know, Jedediah, Zelikiah, all of those kinds of things. Um, and, and you can completely remove yourself from the world. But the problem is... 
that removing yourself from the world doesn't take the influence and the deception of Satan out of your heart. It doesn't do that. The way to fight the influence and the deception of Satan is to fill your heart with the word of God. It's to fill your heart with the word of God. So when deception comes or attempts to come or when the influence of the world attempts to come into your heart, you can rightly discern what is happening and you can combat the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. Jesus did this whenever he was tempted in the wilderness. Satan comes and tempts him, much like he tried to tempt Adam and Eve. But rather than Jesus conceding to the voice of the enemy, he fought against the voice of the enemy with the word of God. And the same thing is true of us. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are going to become the people that God has called and created us to be, if we are going to live into the identity that he has given to us, if we are going to become more of who we already are in Christ, then we have to be a people that know how to fight against the deception of the enemy and the influence of the world. And we have to do that through hiding the word of God in our hearts or by being a people of the book. And so the title of today's sermon is called Looking to the Book. Looking to the Book. And I have three points. As always, I'll read them out, but then we'll break them down uh, individually. The first point is rediscovering the book. The second point is responding to the book, and the third point is rejoicing in the book. And we'll, look, we'll begin with the first point, which is rediscovering the book. And I, I chose to come out of Nehemiah because, first of all, because we're in a series on revival, and most, most scholars agree that this is, by all, by all accounts, a biblical picture of an actual revival that happened in the Scriptures. What happens here in the book of Nehemiah is, is no less than spiritual renewal and revival happening to God's people. And so I wanted to come out of Nehemiah because I think it is a picture of revival. And I also think that it speaks very specifically, this passage speaks very specifically to the importance of being a people that look to the book. Now, a little bit of context about this passage before we get into the points. Um, first and foremost is that Nehemiah was a man who had been serving, serving under a Syrian king whose name was Artaxerxes. And um, the children of Israel had already been released from Babylonian captivity prior to Nehemiah, Nehemiah's coming back to the city of Jerusalem. They had been released from Babylonian captivity. And earlier, a man named Ezra had gone back to see to it that the, that the Jewish temple had been rebuilt. And Nehemiah finds out, though, that although the Jewish temple had been rebuilt, the city still kind of lied in ruins, that the walls around the city had not yet been repaired. And back in that day, the walls to a city were imperative for the survival of that city because the walls actually represented safety for the citizens of the city. And so city walls were very important in that time. And so Nehemiah learns that Jerusalem, for, for the most part, aside from the temple being rebuilt, was still lied in ruins. And so the, the book of Nehemiah starts with uh, this, this picture of Nehemiah being heavy-hearted and broken for the condition of his city. And so he requests, he was the cupbearer of Artaxerxes, Art and so he requests to the Syrian king, he says, can I go back to my city and repair it? But I find this request striking because Nehemiah not only asked, can he go back, but he asked if Artaxerxes will pay for it. And Artaxerxes actually says, yes. But that's because Nehemiah had found favor in his sight because of God. But so the story of Nehemiah is one of Nehemiah going back 
to Jerusalem to repair the walls. But here's what we need to know. And there's a lot more that I could say about the context of this book. Nehemiah not only went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, this passage describes what happened after the city walls had been repaired. Actually, Nehemiah wasn't just rebuilding the city walls. He was contending for the renewal of the Israelites' devotion to God. So he went not just to see to it that the physical walls of the city would be restored. He went back to see to it that the spiritual boundaries of the city would be restored as well, that there would once again be a difference in between God's people and all of those that, that dwelt on the outside of the city, that there would be a substantial marking between the people of God and those who did not call themselves the covenant people of God. And so he cared just as much about the rebuilding of the spiritual or the restoration of the spiritual nature of the Israelites as he did rebuilding the city walls. And so this is what we see happening in Nehemiah chapter 8. When Ezra shows up to read from the law, revival breaks out. Now, again, there's a lot that I could say about the context of this passage. There's, it's peculiar that Ezra shows up here. There's some debate as to whether or not this should have been put, like this passage actually should have been put on the back of Ezra 10, but uh, no time for that. What's important is that we understand that what's happening here is nothing short of spiritual renewal and awakening happening in God's people, and I'll read it to you. Again, a couple of verses just to kind of frame up this first point, rediscovering the book. In verse 1 and 2, it says, And all the people gathered as one man. It means they all came with one purpose. And most commentators believe that there would have been around 50,000 people that showed up to the outside of the city. 50,000 people, right? With no microphones, no amplification, right? No building off of 1960, no Atascacita Presbyterian Church. Okay, 50,000 people out in the open. Right, once again, proves our point that the people of God don't need buildings. But they show up around 50,000, and it says that they showed up as one man, which is really a way of saying that they gathered with a unified purpose. They gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. It's the gate just on the outside of the city. And they told Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So when Ezra shows up to read from the law, the people are gathered for what uh, we, we learned from earlier parts of scripture, Leviticus 23, is called the Feast of Trumpets. They gathered on the first day of the seventh month, which was, uh, the, it was the, fe the Feast of Trumpets, which was the, the beginning of the Jewish New Year. And so the people were gathered on the first day of the seventh month, which is a, a Hebrew calendar. You'd have to know how it's all broken out. Um, but they gathered for the, the, the uh, Feast of Trumpets. And it was a, the Feast of Trumpets was a time to call people into the city to prepare for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So trumpet, the Feast of Trumpets was really just a time that if you were out in the field and you were laboring and you heard the trumpets call, then it was a time to come gather into the city and then make preparations for the Feast of Booths, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And again, there's a lot to be said here, but we don't have time for all of it. But what makes this particular instance peculiar is that it wasn't common practice to read from the law on the Feast of Trumpets. What happens here is not what usually happens 
on the Feast of Trumpets. The people don't gather in a, a place outside of the temple to hear from the reading of God's law. And so the very fact that all of these people show up to the water gate whenever the trumpet is blown, and they ask, they ask for Ezra to bring out the book of the law. Most commentators say that this is a significant occurrence because the people actually ask for the book of the law to be read, which means they were seeking to hear from God's word. They broke, let me put it this way, they broke ritual and they broke form to hear from the word of God. They broke ritual and they broke form to hear from the word of God. And in verse three, it says, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. All right, you think that our services can be long. All right, from early morning until midday, they sat there and just listened to the law being read. Now the law, now mind you, this is the time, this is the time just as, as the prophets are kind of writing all of their narrative, they had just finished writing. So the canonized scripture that they had at this time was the Pentateuch. It was the first five books of the Bible. And so when it's, we're talking about the law being read to them, all right, we're talking about Leviticus and things like that, right? The, the parts that you like to skip in your Bible reading plan. So not only are they sitting there from morning until midday, they're actually sitting there and they're listening to some of the passages that we today are, say are some of the hardest passages to read and sit through. And so they're, lit, they're sitting there and they're listening with this hunger for God's word. It says in verse three that they were attentive from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And it says, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And the word attentive there, it means that they had their ear to it. They had their ear to the book. They were ready to listen. Now, they didn't show up waiting to be entertained. They didn't show up waiting to be engaged by some charismatic speaker with stage props, right? Like a Ferrari or a pirate ship or something like that. Like they didn't, they didn't show up to be entertained. They didn't show up to be engaged by a charismatic speaker. They didn't, hear, they didn't show up to hear a three-point sermon on how to make their lives better using the word of God. They showed up with their ear to the book just to hear the book. Just to hear the book. They wanted to hear the book proclaimed and they wanted to understand it. They were attentive to the word of God. Now, the reason that most commentators say that this is significant is because up until this point, and we'll see this, we would see, if we were doing a sermon on Nehemiah 9 or 10, we would see this. But the reason most commentators say that this is peculiar is because the Israelites had the temple, but they had still neglected the Torah, the Torah, the law. The Israelites already had the temple. Ezra came and saw to it that the temple was built. They had the temple, but they, but they had still neglected the Torah. The law of God still had not shaped their lives in a way that was producing transformation. 
And we know this is true because after the renewal that occurs in Nehemiah 8 and 9, the first thing that Nehemiah does in chapter 10 is he calls them to obey what was written in the law. So we know that they had been, even though they had the temple, they weren't necessarily obeying the Torah because the first thing, like I said, after this instance happens in in Nehemiah 8 and 9, the first thing that happens in Nehemiah 10 is Nehemiah calls them and he says, okay, now we have to actually renew our covenant faithfulness with God. They had the temple, but they still hadn't been applying or obeying the Torah. And so they had religious rituals but neglected the Torah, they didn't have a responsive relationship with God at this point. Now, the reason that this is significant for me is because the children of Israel are not unlike us in that when you have the temple and you have religious rituals, it's easy to fall into a pattern where you get used to relying upon the rituals as the primary forms of your spiritual devotion or as the primary form of your, as your spiritual devotion to God. Your devotion to God becomes the ritual. God takes issue with this, just so you know. Isaiah chapter one opens up with God, scathing, a scathing rebuke to the children of Israel because he says, I, he says, I hate your new moons, your Sabbaths, your festivals. I hate them. He says that they're detestable to me. Why? Because you're neglecting the more weighty matters that I've called you to, to justice and righteousness and all of these things. What can happen is whenever we get caught up in religious ritual, the ritual itself can become our form of devotion and our heart can can cease to be engaged in it. And this was happening with the people of God and so they needed renewal. They needed renewal though to and through the word of God. They needed to move beyond the religious rituals and they needed to have a responsive relationship with God through his word. And listen, friends, sometimes keeping rituals keeps God out of our lives. It keeps him at arm's length. We do just enough for God that we feel secure in our religious identity. I'm gonna say it again. We do just enough for God that we feel secure in our religious identity, but submission to the word of God doesn't permeate every aspect of our lives, and that is what God asks of us. That is what he expects from us. It's not that we would have just enough religious ritual to feel secure in our identity or to feel secure in calling ourselves Christian. God wants every aspect of his word to permeate every aspect of our entire lives. He wants us to be a people who are shaped by the book. He wants us to not just have the temple, he wants us to have the Torah at the center of our lives. And revival occurs when we rediscover the sufficiency and authority of the word of God in every facet of our lives when we become a people who are always looking to the book, God's spirit works among us. So as we sit here and we, we say that we, we wanna pray for a revival and we wanna ask God for a revival, I want us to be very, very clear. What we're really asking for is that we're asking for a radical reorientation of our lives around the word of God, okay? 
I want to be clear. We're not, when we say revival, we're not saying, God, we want to experience cool stuff. We want to experience signs and wonders and miracles, and we want to see altar calls and this and that and the other, and people falling down in the spirit, and we want to see people hover across the floors. And like, we don't, no, no, no. When we're praying for revival, that is not what we are praying for. We're praying for a radical reorientation around the word of God by the spirit of God. And we're saying, God, we need it because we know how hard-hearted we are. We know how easily deceived we are. We know how influenced by the world we really are. We know how much we have become like the church at Laodicea. And so, God, we need your spirit to come and to illuminate your word in a way that captivates our hearts in a way that it should. We want to be attentive to your word, God. But whenever I say that we need to rediscover the word, some of us might be sitting there and say, how, how, could we play? how do we need to rediscover the book? Because uh, if you're like me, you have like 35 copies of the Bible in your house. You know? I, I, I seriously do. It is insane how many copies of the scripture I have. Um, partly because there was a, a time in my life whenever it, like I served, on, served as a part of the Acts 29 network and Acts 29 has this deal with uh, Crossway Publishers, and the Crossway is the, the ones that publish the English Standard Version of the Bible. And uh, like whenever you first get into Acts 29, they will send you a very nice leather-bound, like a, a lambskin copy of the, of the scriptures. And um, I, not only, I got like three copies. And I had to like tell the Crossway rep, I'm like, I've got three copies of a lambskin Bible. These are not cheap. I'm like, why don't you keep sending them to me? I'm like, do I need to send them back? He's like, ah, just give them to somebody. But I was like, no, I'm actually going to keep them. <laughs> because I know how easily in the past I had lost Bibles, but lo and behold, I've actually had this copy. This is what, like, I've had this copy forever. So if you want a lambskin Bible, hit me up. I'll do a raffle. Um, but like, you might be at, why do we need to rediscover the Word of God, Pastor? Like, we have so many copies. The, the Bible is so readily available to us. Not only can we get copies of the scripture anywhere that we want in the United States. We have, we have it on our phones, right? We have it on the internet. We have it anywhere and everywhere we want. So how could we possibly need to rediscover something that we are so familiar with? Because just like the children of Israel, it's not our proximity to the word of God or even our access to it that's the issue. It's the long-standing it's the long-standing neglect of its significance. It's, it's not that we need to rediscover or have access to it. It's that we need to rediscover the significance of it, the importance of it, the centrality of it. And I, my fear is that in the West, we, we have such easy access to the Scriptures such easy access to the word of God. We can get it not just, not, you can't, not only can you just go and like pick up a, a copy at the store, but you can pick up the copy in like 37,000 different versions, right? We got like the teen version, the preteen version, the remixed version, the double remixed version. It's starting to sound like a Dr. Dre album. Like there's so many different versions of the Bible and so many different translations in English, in English. It's like, do you want a literal translation? Do you want a word for word? Do you want a phrase for phrase? Do you want a paraphrase? Like, what do you want? What kind of paraphrase do you want? 
My, my fear is that we have gotten so used to having the access to the word of God that we have gotten to a place to where we assume its presence and power in our lives in a way that we shouldn't. Listen, a Bible that stays on your shelf or a Bible app that stays closed on your phone, let me put it that way, is of no effect or influence on your heart. We don't get credit just for owning them. And we don't get credit for how many copies we own. We don't get credit for how many versions or translations we own. The fear that I have and the reason that I thought that this sermon was so timely, I'd kind of reworked the sermons for the past couple weeks, is because when we get so used to the word of God, we assume its place in our lives. And before long, we not just assume its place in our lives, we begin to make assumptions about the word of God in our lives. And that leads us into a very dangerous place as the people of God. When we begin assuming things about the word of God that are not true of the word of God, we are walking in dangerous territory. Brennan Manning says this about, he's speaking about the gospel, the word. He says, because we approach the gospel with preconceived notions of what it should say rather than what it does say, the word no longer falls like rain on the parched ground of our souls. It no longer sweeps like a wild storm into the corners of our comfortable piety it no longer vibrates like sharp lightning in the dark recesses of our non-historic orthodoxy. The gospel becomes, in the words of Gertrude Stein, a pattering of pious platitudes spoken by a Jewish carpenter in the distant past. So Brennan Manning warns us that when we begin to approach the word of God with preconceived notions of what it should say rather than what it does say, when we begin to assume things about the word of God, whenever we begin to have an assumptive relationship with the word of God, it stops holding the power that it ought to in our lives. It becomes the pattering of, a, of pious platitudes of a Jewish carpenter who lived in the distant past. And in other words, the word is no longer living and active like a sharp two-edged sword in our lives. And so when I say that we need to rediscover the book, it's much what the children of Israel were doing here. It's, it's not that they didn't have access to, to the Torah. They did. They did. They had access to the scrolls. Not in the way that we, you know, they didn't have the printing press. It's not like they had access to the Torah. It's not that they lacked access to it. It's that they had gone away from seeing the significance of it in how their daily lives were formed. Not just their religious rituals that they did whenever they showed up to worship at the temple, but their daily lives being submitted to and surrendered under the word of God. And so it is dangerous whenever we begin to assume things about the word of God and we don't see the significance of it in our lives. And when that happens, we need to rediscover it much like the children of Israel did. They came and they told, which I love, they told Ezra, they said, bring out the book. Bring out the book. We're tired of living this way. We want the book to be central in our lives. So the first thing we see in, in Nehemiah 8 is there was a rediscovering of the word of God. Excuse me, I'm sorry. The second point is not that we would just rediscover the word of God, but that we would respond to the word of God. That we would respond to the word of God. And it reads like this. Keep reading, sorry. 
in verse 4, it says, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood some company on his left hand. <laughs> leaving that to you, Eric. All right. Um, the word of God has been read once. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> some company on his left hand, picking up at the end of verse 4. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. If you ever wonder where we get idea of pulpits and platforms and all of that. He was above all the people, and he opened it all, or as he opened it all, the people stood. If you also ever, ever wondered why at, at Providence we ask for you to stand for the reading of God's word, it's not an unbiblical thing that we're doing. Uh, this is something that was actually practiced by the people of God for a long, long time. It's a way to stand in reverence or to recognize that there's a difference in between God's word being spoken and man's word being spoken. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And it says in verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, what happens here is as Ezra reads from the book of the law, the people of God then respond to the reading. They begin to respond to what is being said. And they, they respond in a posture of, and there are, what is this, four things, five things? Five things. There are five things that occur in this portion of Scripture and how they respond to the word. Number one is they respond in agreement. I'll break these down here in a second. Number two, they respond in gratitude. Number three, they respond in submission. Number four, they respond in lament. And number five, they respond in joy. So they respond to the book, but they, they first respond to it in, in agreement. Where do we see this? It says in verse six, as Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and then all the people answered, amen, amen. Now the word amen simply means let it be so or let it be true. And so whenever people respond to the word of God by saying amen, it's a way of expressing affirmation of the truth that is spoken. And so if you guys ever see me joke about my charismatic roots and that sometimes this is a very quiet church, I'm essentially saying there's not a whole lot of amens going on there. There's not a lot of agreement. So maybe I'm preaching heresy or maybe it's just not landing on your ears or maybe you're just a quiet person and that's okay. But know that whenever people speak up in the gathering and they say amen, it's not something that is extra biblical or unbiblical, okay? And also know that I'm not up here, <laughs> praise God, also know that I'm not up here fishing for compliments, okay? Uh, this is not a, 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 a situation where it's like, please affirm what I'm saying because I need your affirmation so desperately. It's not that at all. It's that whenever the word of God is spoken, it is completely appropriate to respond to the word of God on the spot by saying amen. It's completely appropriate to say it. When biblical truth is spoken, it is completely appropriate. You need not fear to say amen when you hear something that is truthful and spoken from the word of God. And so the children of Israel, what they're doing is Ezra gets up and reads the book of the law. They say amen, amen. And then they, so they respond in agreement. And then the next thing that they do is they respond in gratitude. Now, how do we know that? It says, and all the people answered amen, amen. And then they did this other thing. You'll see happen at church sometimes. They lifted their hands. They lifted their hands. Now, they probably, I don't know if they lifted their hands like this, you know. Like. 
They lifted their hands. They could have lifted their hands like this. They could have lifted their hands like this. There's a number of um, scholars and commentators that talk about, you know, what was the real purpose of, of raising your hands because it's not the only place that you see this in the Bible. You see it all throughout the Psalms that we're told to lift up our hands and you see the people of God lifting their hands in praise. Um, but what is likely happening whenever people, the people of God raise their hands in the Old Testament is they are raising their hands as a sign of gratitude or as a sign of receiving, as a sign of receiving God's grace. It is a, it is a, a way of, of expressing gratitude towards receiving something from God or receiving the word of God. And so lifting our hands is a gesture of gratitude and praise towards God. Again, this is why I have no problem lifting my hands whenever the church is, is worshiping or lifting my hands during any other time whenever there's a prayer going on or anything like that, because I know that there is a physical, listen, there's not just a verbal response to the truth that is spoken. There is actually a physical response to the truth that is spoken. They lift their hands, and then they, here in a moment, they also bow down with their faces prostrate before the Lord. And so there's a physical response, a showing of gratitude towards the word of God being spoken. And so they not only agree, but they show gratitude towards the word that is being spoken. And this is important for us, friends, because truth being able to agree to truth, but without showing gratitude towards the, towards the truth or for the truth, can lead to, again, what Emil Bruner, who's a, a, a biblical scholar, says or calls dead orthodoxy. Now, there's a number of other people that talk about dead orthodoxy, but truth without gratitude or praise can easily lead our hearts into dead orthodoxy. If we can just look at the word of God and say, that's true, but our hearts aren't moved towards it in gratitude and praise, then we're wandering into dangerous territory. I'm going to say it again, because I feel like we as a church need to hear it. Being able to just recognize something is true, but not having your heart move towards gratitude towards the truth or joy towards the truth or seeing, seeing God as praiseworthy for the truth. We're wandering into dangerous territory where we can become knowledgeable about the things of God but not have our hearts affected by it. So they're not only in agreement of what is, what is being said is true, but they're also grateful for it, and they lift their hands as a gesture of gratitude and praise. The next thing that they do, though, is that it says that they lift their hands, and then it says that they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, bowing with faces to the ground in that time and still to this day is a sign of reverence and submission. And so they're not only in agreement, they're not only grateful for what, what is being said and what is being read to them, but they are submissive to it. They're bowing their faces to the ground as a sign of reverence and submission. And, and what I, what I want to say here is that praising God, all right, so affirming the truth, amen, amen, praising God with your hands raised, but not submitting to it leads to this form of spiritual sentimentalism, right? So... You can affirm truth, you can be grateful for truth, but if you have no intention of actually applying the truth, then it's nothing more than sentimentalism to you. It's knowledge and it's sentiment, but if it's not obedience, then it's not the heart of what, it's, it's, it's not getting to the heart of what God is after whenever he sends his word out to his people. 
praise without submission leads to this kind of false sense of sentimentalism. And the children of Israel here respond not just in agreement, not just in gratitude, but they also respond with a posture of submission and reverence before the word of God. The next thing that they do, though, and we have to skip down a little bit. It says, again, uh, in verse 7, and also Jeshua and his company um, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book of the law or from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so they not only submit to it, what happens is the word of God is actually explained to them in a way that they can understand it. Now, some commentators are, are at odds with one another as to whether or not they're like literally going and explaining the word, kind of like expositing it, or whether or not they're translating it because many of the children of Israel might have spoken Aramaic at that time and the, the Torah would have been read in only Hebrew. That There's debate about that, but nonetheless, what happens is the people of God actually get understanding from what was said. It's clearly communicated to them in a way that they understand it. And when they understand it, check out what happens in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. It says, For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So they not only submitted to it, but there was this lament as they heard the word of the law spoken to them. And weeping was a sign of deep grief and repentance for sin. And so as they understand what's being said, What's likely happening is they are also simultaneously understanding how they have broken God's law. And so they're grieved over it. They're hearing God's word spoken to them and they're realizing just how far off course they are and it grieves their heart. They begin to weep and they begin to mourn over the sinfulness in their lives. But again, something peculiar happens where Ezra and Nehemiah say, don't weep. This is a day set apart unto the Lord. Again, you have to remember, this is not something that was common. Weeping was not a part of the day of, or the feast of trumpets. This was supposed to be a day of celebration, a day of preparation on the back of a time of repentance, a season called Teshuvah, a traditional season called Teshuvah. And so this was not the time in their eyes for the, for the people of God to be weeping. But here's what happens. Again, they sought the word of God out and because they sought the word of God out and because they measured themselves against the word of God, they saw just how desperate and needy they actually were, how exposed they were before God's law and they were broken. They couldn't help themselves. Again, they broke ritual. They broke form. They're so moved by what's happening in God's word, they're breaking ritual and they're breaking form. And listen to me, people, when we pray for revival, that can happen. Rituals get broken. Forms and practices that we have fallen in love with get shattered. Things that are, were comfortable to us or things that we saw as once to be the only way to do it now become a little bit more subjective to us because God invades our space and he shakes things up. And this is what's happening. And so, but, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're like, whoa, like calm it down, guys. Like they're, they're sitting there and you just imagine 50,000 people in sorrow on the day of, uh, of the Feast of Trumpets. And they're like, whoa, 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 we're, we're like trying to prepare for the, like the Day of Atonement and the, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles here. But listen, when revival breaks out, 
it's hard to contain what God does in our hearts. But so what happens, though, is Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they try and redirect the children of Israel on what's happening, and here's what, they say, what it says in verse 10. It says, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites, Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So the last thing that happens is they not only lament as they hear the words spoken to them, but they rejoice. Their lament, their sadness was turned into joy and rejoicing was a sign of satisfaction. Rejoicing in that time, we, the people of God were called to rejoice. People of God were called to give thanks and praise for what he had done as a sign of, of saying that we are satisfied in all that God has given us and all that God has done for us. And so they're redirected, their, their lament and their mourning is redirected and they're saying, don't just sit here and lament over your sin, find satisfaction in who God is and what he's done for you. And this is a temptation for us as well as we read the word of God. We can read the word of God and we can, in, and, I, and I, I think this is what the spirit of God wants us to, to experience is we want to come to this place of conviction where we see just how needy we are and we're led to a place of lament and sorrow over our sin, right? But as Paul says in, to the Corinthians that it would be a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, not a worldly sorrow, Right? But so we should be sorrowful as we see the law of God compared to us and we see that we have not lived up to the standard that God has called us to. But for those of us who are in Christ, we should not just stop at lament. There should be rejoicing. Now I'm going to hop up on a soapbox here for just a minute, okay? And then I'll get back down and I'll get back to what I was going to say. This is very near and dear to my heart. Because by disposition, I'm a very melancholic person. My wife is not in the room right now or else she would have said amen. <laughs> I oftentimes make fun of Eeyore, like the Eeyore personality or temperament of Christians, because my inclination is to be Eeyore, right? You guys, I'm, I'm, a, I'm assuming you're somewhat familiar with Winnie the Pooh. Um, <laughs> Eeyore is the guy, the donkey, that will find fault with anything, no matter what it is, right? The movie Winnie the Pooh, which my son Jude loves to watch all the time, there's a scene where Winnie the Pooh sneezes, and he says, I must be coming down with the cold. Eeyore says, I'll probably catch it too. <laughs> he finds a way to be negative about anything that's happening, all right? There is a, a, a kind of Eeyore spirit that sometimes rests on the church where we actually find a way to revel in our brokenness and we find a way to even find our identity in our brokenness as opposed to resting and rejoicing in our identity that has been given to us by Christ. We can spend so much time trying to put to death our sin we can spend so much time reading about the mortification of sin. We can spend so much time doing those things, reading books, blogs, and all of those things that essentially 
reveal to us just how sinful that we are, that we forget in our hearts that we are not just sinful, we have been saved. And I'll use a term that I see oftentimes thrown around amongst Christians. Yes, you are depraved. In your firstborn nature. But if you were in Christ, the old, has come, the old is gone and the new has come. You have been made a new creation in Christ. So you still struggle against sin, absolutely. Sin is a part of your nature. You will always struggle against that. But you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, that means that your heavenly father is not looking down upon you and saying, you depraved wretch. That's his son. That's his daughter. You are in Christ. The blood of Christ has been imputed to you. His righteousness has been credited to your spiritual bank account. You are now rich in Christ. And so it is not... (laughs) It is not a sign of spiritual maturity if you can just lament and wallow in your sin all the time. There's a movement that has to happen after lament, and that is rejoicing. Rejoicing in who God is, rejoicing in what he had done for you. And oftentimes what's happening in the old covenant, whenever the the children of Israel are being called to rejoice, they're being called to rejoice and remember the redemption that has occurred. They're, they're, called, they're being called to rejoice and remember God's covenant faithfulness, that he is the one who called them out of Egyptian slavery and bondage and brought them into the promised land. And even though they had broken his, his, his law and violated his commandment time, at, time, at, or time and time again, that he remained faithful to them. So a genuine response to the word of God, brothers and sisters, will certainly precede any revival experience in the spirit of God. And it will likely include all of these things, that we will come to a place of agreement, that we will come to a place of gratitude, of submission, of lamenting, and of rejoicing. But we must ask ourselves, and I say we as in like, I want us to take this question and make it personal before we close out our final point. What is our relationship with the Word of God? What is your relationship with the Word of God right now? Do you have the temple, but not the Torah? Like, do you come to church on Sundays, hear the word read, and then never pick it up again throughout the week? Do you have ritual, but no response? Do you look beyond the book, over the book, but never look to the book to shape and form your everyday life? Listen, I know the answer, okay? These are rhetorical questions. For some of us, I think we have a very healthy relationship with the book, with the law of God, with the word of God. But for many of us, and I pull this from a lot of research that's been done by Christians in the West, by Christians in the U.S. specifically, for many of us, we don't really have much of a relationship with the book, We don't look to the book in our daily lives. Now, why don't we do that, though? Some of us will say, because we're busy. Listen, it can't be your busyness. It can't be. 
You say, well, you don't know how busy I am. Listen, you will still find a way to occupy your mind and heart with something. I'll be at television, radio, something. Fiction, a different kind, like a different book, right? We find a way to occupy our minds and hearts with something. It's not our busyness. And it can't be our ignorance either. Those are typically the two biggest excuses. I don't have time for it. I don't understand it. But it can't be our ignorance either because, listen, we will find ways to educate ourselves about the things that we're passionate about. Will we not? You find a new hobby, you get passionate about the hobby, you will educate yourself on how to live into that hobby and how to do that hobby. I'll be at YouTube videos or anything that you can possibly find. If you want to take up fishing, you'll go with someone that knows how to fish, and then you'll have them teach you everything that you can possibly know about fishing. If you want to take up hunting, if you want to do that, ladies, if you want to take up something else, like whatever it is that we end up doing, and I didn't mean that to be a chauvinistic statement. I understand that ladies love to fish and hunt too. My wife is one of them. But no matter what the hobby may be, and yes, I did say my wife loves to hunt. She has shot deer and stuff like that, and she's quartered a deer too. So... If you're like looking, you're like, Emily, really? Like crafty little Emily, like glitter and flower? Yes, she is shot and, and, and quartered a deer. Um, it can't be our ignorance because we'll find ways to educate ourselves about the things we're passionate about. What then, why don't we look to the book? Soren Kierkegaard says this. Kierkegaard was a philosopher. He says, the Bible is very easy to understand. Some of you might contend with that. He's a philosopher, Okay. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. Again, he's a philosopher. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. Why don't we look to the book? We don't look to the book because we're self conscious, we're self seeking. We're self-centered, we're self-absorbed, we're self-indulgent, and self-indulgent, sorry. We're self-gratifying. And what happens when we read the word of God is it quickly brings us to the end of ourselves. And it exposes our idolatrous desires and our self-obsessed nature. It makes us uncomfortable. Have you ever wondered why, and like, again, I don't, I don't mean to be like hyper-spiritual up here, but have you ever wondered why, like, honestly, you can sit down and read an article for 30 minutes on your phone, but if you were to put down your phone and try and read the Bible for 30 minutes, it's hard to do sometimes? You don't think that there's something spiritual behind that? You're like, well, I can't understand it. Listen, listen. I'm teaching my son theology. I'm teaching my son the Bible right now. Like my, my son has probably memorized more scripture than, I mean, he's certainly, in like nine weeks, he's memorized more scripture than I had probably memorized in first, the first nine years of my life as a Christian. It's not that it's hard to understand. It's really not. I will sit and I will read the Bible with my son. We have been reading John and 1 John, and we'll go back and forth, and we'll read those two things, and I'll say, do you understand what's being said here, buddy? And he says, yeah, daddy, I understand. And he'll actually recap what was said. So I'm like, if my nine-year-old, who, mind you, didn't speak English four and a half years ago, can sit down and read the Gospel of John or 1 John and actually comprehend and respond back to me what it's saying, then it's not an issue of comprehension. Kierkegaard is right. It's that there's something in our heart that does not want to get into the word of God and sit up underneath it. 
and allow it to challenge and shape us and form us and mold us. And when we read the word of God, we're confronted with a call to respond. We're confronted with God's unrivaled holiness and we're called to respond in repentance and faith. And listen, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us squirm. But this is where our growth occurs. The final point is just like the children of Israel did, they rejoiced in the book and so we ought to, but here's what I really wanna drive home. Many of us refuse to look to the book because we fear being condemned. We don't like the feeling of condemnation, do we? I don't like that feeling. If you like the feeling of condemnation, you're even more melancholic than I am probably, right? Because I don't, I don't like that feeling. I don't like the feeling. I don't like to feel condemned. We don't like to read the book, maybe perhaps because we fear that when we go to it, we're going to be condemned. But listen, brothers and sisters, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. And oftentimes what you might be experiencing is actually conviction that you have confused for condemnation. But it's actually God trying to lead you towards him, not away from him. And here's the difference in between conviction and condemnation. Jesus said himself in John 3, 17, that he did not come into the world to to condemn the world, but to save the world, that the world might be saved through him. So the difference in between condemnation and conviction is condemnation leads you away from God. Conviction leads you towards God. It leads you towards towards a revelation of your need for a savior. So when we read the word of God, there should actually be a rejoicing that occurs because we know that we have a good and faithful God that has saved us from our sin. But listen, even for the Israelites, even for the Israelites who didn't have the atoning sacrifice of Jesus to rejoice in, the law was a delight to them. You got to remember, whenever they're reading the law, again, Torah, First five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, right? This is what's being read to them, right? Like this is not, there's no bloody savior dying on a cross for their sins, but yet they're still rejoicing. Why would they be rejoicing without the gospel? Because the word of God itself revealed the will of God to them. It revealed the nature of God to them. And they were happy just knowing how to know God and knowing how to please God. Listen, just knowing how to know God and knowing how to please God was enough for them to rejoice. Just knowing how to know him, just knowing how to please him was enough to make them rejoice. But we, brothers and sisters, have so much more. We not only know what the will of God is. And we not only know how to please him, we know that through Christ, the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled on our behalf. We know so much more than they knew. We can see retrospectively so much more than they were able to see. And so our rejoicing should be, in my humble opinion, so much more than theirs was. Calvin contends that the right, the right use of the law is to prove that we can't obey it. It's called the third use of the law. And we can't obey it. Now, the children of Israel, they had the law, and they had full knowledge that they couldn't obey it. 
but they still rejoiced, like I said, because through the law, they could know God if they could know what God wanted for them. And that was enough for them to rejoice. But for us, we see our need to be redeemed from our sin, just like they did. But we actually see a redeemer. We see our need to be redeemed and we have the joy of being able to see our redeemer as well. Amen. And so when we look to the book, we not only look or we look to know what to do, we look to know what has already been done for us in the gospel. And this should create in us this, <laughs> this fire to rejoice, this zeal, this desire to celebrate who Jesus is and what he has done. And if we're ever going to experience revival, brothers and sisters, it will begin with a strong desire and an insatiable hunger and an unquenchable thirst to celebrate who God is and what he has done for us. To look at the law and say, God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. But even more than that, thank you for coming and living in perfect obedience to the word in areas that we could not ever obey. Dying the death that we should have died and rising to give us life that we didn't deserve. Thank you, God. If revival is going to fall and come upon us, it's going to come upon hearts that are looking to the book and rejoicing in the work of God. Not just what we are called to do, but in what he has done. And my prayer for providence is that we would be a people that look to the book. And we, as we look to the book, we would see who God is. We would know what he expects of us. But we would also rejoice in what he's done for us. And so me, even me, the Eeyore Christian, I have been confronted over and over and over again in my Christian walk with how I approach the word of God and how I approach worship. And I've had to be very, very honest with myself and say, am I, am I, am I sincerely joyful that the word of God is being sung right now or the word of God is being spoken right now or the word of God is being proclaimed right now or the word of God is being read and I can understand it right now or am I just sitting there nodding my head in agreement saying, amen, amen, but none of the other things follow. And so my prayer for us, brothers and sisters, is if we're going to pray for revival, this is where revival begins. It's in response to the word of God and saying, amen, thank you. I want to do what you call me to do, God. I'm broken over my sin. I am, I've come undone over my sin, but I am also rejoicing in who you are and what you have done for me. And so, like I said from the beginning, when we pray for revival, we're not praying for cool experiences. We're praying that our hearts would be oriented towards the word of God in submission to the word of God and we would actually be able to live out and obey the word of God in a way that brings him glory and brings good to our city. Next week, we'll finish the sermon series. Eric will be preaching on prayer as kind of the posture of revival and dependence. And then we're gonna move into a sermon series on the Holy Spirit the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We'll be spending time there all the way up to Pentecost 
And in that series, again, we're just going to be talking about who God is and what he has done for us, but particularly in the work of the Holy Spirit, how the Spirit has applied redemption and done all of these things for us. And my prayer for our church is that we would become a people that are revived and renewed. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather and to hear your word spoken. Um, God, it is no small thing or insignificant thing that we get to hear your word proclaimed. And we have, God, such easy access to your word. God, I pray that it's not, that as we said earlier, that, that our lives wouldn't just be defined by the access that we have to your word, but God, our lives would be defined by the significance of your word in our lives and in our heart that we'd submit ourselves to and surrender to your word. That we would see the scriptures as central, <coughs> as central in our lives. Help us, God, to not just be hearers of the word, but help us, Father, by your spirit to be doers also. God, help us to rejoice in our redemption. Help us to rejoice in what has been revealed to us in your word, not just who you are, not just what you desire us to do, God, but we can look back and we can also rejoice in what you have done for us in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts are overflowing with joy and gladness and gratitude because we have much to celebrate. We have much to be thankful for. God, as we go from this place, I pray that we would be a people that are not just content to gather at the temple, to gather for worship, but God, I pray that we would be a people that truly are shaped by your word, by the Torah, by the law. Help us to live out what you've called us to, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.